Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, <laughs> state-of-the-art studios of Outlaw Radio USA, nestled in our secret bunker, somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program produced with an artistic vengeance by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. True crime uncensored. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man over there, Howard Lapidus, manager to the star, who thankfully his microphone is not plugged in. <laughs> Just yell real loud and they'll hear you in Sherman Oaks. <laughs> Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, is not here. I guess he's under the cloudy weather. Okay, for 25 points, I wonder if Patrick E. Craig knows the answer to this question. Oh. He's not there. What, he got disconnected? He hung up. He probably got fed up. You start hearing the show open? Uh, I... He's there? Or not there? I'm there. Okay, for 25 points, what is... How did you pronounce it? Amish or Amish? Amish. Amish. Okay, an Amish woman's fantasy is what? Two Mennonites. Uh, <laughs> two, two Mennonites. Yeah. Oh, brother. Yeah. I see, Burl, I forgot. <laughs> you, forgot you forgot what you were in for, right? Yeah, I forgot. It, it's only been 57 years, so who would remember? Yeah. <laughs> you should have been forewarned. <laughs> okay, you know what? An Amish uh, man uh, with his arm inside the rear end of a mule is termed a mechanic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, that's only the two. Amish, <laughs> the Amish-American princess is walking down the road and she sees young Levin Troyer stumbling along the path. Ah. He looks He looks terrible. Ah. He's, he's, he, his, his hair is disheveled, his clothes aren't ironed. She says, Levin, <laughs> what... What happened? You look terrible. He says, I should look terrible. I just murdered my wife with a pitchfork. She says, oh, you're single? <laughs> you're just taking all the Jewish American princess jokes and, <laughs> and changing the, uh, the clothing. I can't. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a good one. I like that one. Okay. Well, we're off to this. In case you don't know, Patrick E. Craig, who's been on the program before, was uh, my first radio co-host in high school when we did the high school radio show. Wow. And we were a dynamic, wow. dynamic team, and I'm surprised they, they didn't shoot us. Uh, <laughs> I, I think they wanted to. Oh, yeah. you're great, Howard. Howard's microphone was making it... He just unplugged the microphone, which improves the sound quality of his voice tremendously. Now he's going to yeah. plug it back in. Let's see what happens. Okay. Uh, oh, say something, Howard. Something. We're there. We're back. He's back. Patrick, a pleasure to uh, say hello. Yeah, that's, that's uh, Howard Lapidus. He's manager of the star. Patrick E. Craig, uh, in the literary industry, we say uh, he fell into a schmaltz pot. Uh, yes. <laughs> schmaltz is chicken fat, and uh, you fall yes. into a schmaltz pot. It means that you uh, you got real lucky, and you came into a bunch of success. And there on a dare, go. now make sure I'm telling the story right, Pat. Uh, on a dare, he wrote uh, this Amish fiction book, 
and he became a star. Yes. <laughs> you yeah, have... And I went to a writer's conference, and I found out that among Christians, the best-selling genre for the last 25 years, and I'm talking about hands down, way beyond anything else, is Amish fiction, if you can believe that. I, I guess I'm going to have to. <laughs> I have yeah. no choice. <laughs> you see, I, I found that to be very strange. And, and, That's Howard. Uh, yeah, it is Howard. Uh, Patrick. Uh, and... And off you went to start writing this, and I, I kind of found you unique in that area. Well, uh, the interesting thing about it is, is that I think that people like Amish fiction because we're so caught up in this technical world, and it's all it's all Mac, you know, Mac burgers, and every <laughs> instant I, I want. I want my chicken nuggets now, and you know, and you and you go on the internet and you search Google, and you can find anything about anything in a in a second. And yet, here's this group of people who are like living this like really slowed down lifestyle, and I think that appeals to a lot of people. Yeah, but it, it takes a long time to get places. You know, you're going home yeah. for the holidays. You know, they're, <laughs> not, they're not stacked up at the airport. Yeah. Well, that's right. You don't. Well, you don't go in the airport. You don't even get there to go home for the holidays. You walk next door. No. Oh. See, that's the good. That's the good thing about it. It's all such a family-oriented thing, and people live within a few miles of each other. So they give, just hop in the buggy and off they go. Given given all that, um, what 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 found murder? Where where did you find the murder in all this? <laughs> the conflict. Yes. Where I found the conflict was that most Amish fiction is written by women, uh, number one. I'm one of about seven guys that actually write Amish fiction, and most of the books that they write are what we call bonnet and buggies or bonnet sonnets, where everything turns out just fine. They're these lighthearted little romances where everything turns out just fine because they're Amish, you know. Ah. and and little Rachel falls in love with the hulking Levon, you know, who's a glistening sweat body, you know, <laughs> sweaty so instead body. Of, instead of bonus rippers, these are bonnet rippers. These are bonnet rippers. And I, uh, I read too much um, Zane Grey when I was a kid and too, much, too many science fiction books and too many Louis L'Amour to uh, want to delve into that end of it, and so I put in uh, murder and mystery, and uh, you know the Amish heiress is now actually on on Amazon, which is my previous book. It's in number twenty in mystery Christian mystery and suspense. Hmm. Uh, probably the first time they've had an Amish in that category. Well, uh, you know, and and I think so. I actually I think it is and so my editor calls it Amish plus because it's not really Amish. It's just as a story set in that uh, not the genre but in that lifestyle or whatever. Yes, exactly. That's exactly. very clever. So you've created something new in the world of literature. I I actually think I have and um I and I did it on purpose. 
Well, you know me, Burl. I, yes. I've always been kind of a uh, do it on, you know, kind of let's stir the pot kind mm -hmm. of guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, back in high school, I was the second guy to get green suede beetle boots. <laughs> I, you know? I was the second <laughs> guy to get stretched jeans. Uh, yes. <laughs> they almost kicked <laughs> me out over that one. I, I know, stretched jeans. I, I can't imagine. The, oh, the horror of it. <laughs> oh, it was it was. It was He was an interesting guy, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, really, very, very interesting guy. Well, speaking of interesting, I was reading the plot of your latest book, and I'll tell you, it's, it's not one of those Buggy and Bono ones, that's for darn sure. Uh, no, it is not. And as a matter of fact, um, there's lots of uh, massacres and scalpings and all kinds of good stuff. Now, you know. uh, being as it, I was reading through this plot and going, he must have spent a lot of time on Google <laughs> to write this one because it's, it's set in a particular historical context. You have uh, certain Indian tribes doing certain things. You have the, the Amish doing and there's this, all this stuff going on. I'm going, is this any link to historical reality, these types of things transpire, or are you just making this up? Totally. No, it, it's all uh, it's all set in a very realistic setting. The only thing that's fictional is the actual characters themselves, but the but the happenings and the surroundings and what's going on with the tribes, with the different tribes, particularly the Delaware tribe, and what happened when uh, when uh, William Penn came over. See, it's interesting because William Penn showed up in America with a with a uh, a deed. To all of the uh, Delaware Indians' homeland. Oh, they must have been and thrilled it, with that. <laughs> uh, they uh, absolutely thrilled, and and it was given to them by King Charles. It was given to Penn by King Charles in payment for a debt. Well, he he used that same piece of land to pay off about three or four major debts. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when when Penn got there, he was he was the first one to lay claim to this land, and he actually was was pretty uh, decent with the Indians. He, he paid them uh, for land, but then they just, they after that it was just uh, kind of, they made a deal with him, okay, uh, we'll, we'll buy this land and it will extend, the, la extend will uh, the land will only extend as far as a man can walk in one day. And so they said, fine, they agreed to that. And then they hired the two fastest runners in the <laughs> colonies and they, and they took off running one morning and ran three times as far as the Indians had expected them to go and claimed all the land. I mean, that was the kind of stuff that they were pulling on them. And so, uh, yeah, it, Google is a wonderful thing. I mean, I, I can't imagine. I remember when Bill Ulick was writing books back Hold on a second, Pat. We had a little technical thing here. Okay, go ahead. All right. Here we go. Do, do you remember Bill Gulick, yeah. uh, the guy who li lived in Walla Walla? He wrote Bend in the River and Hallelujah Trail and, and a couple other. Well, I remember talking to him, and he actually moved to Walla Walla to, to do the research for a couple of his books. He had to actually move his whole house from wherever he was living, Oklahoma, I think, to come to Walla Walla to do the research because there were the only thing that was available was like the Whitman College Library and, right. the, and the Walla Walla Library and 
and a few other historical, you know, the Fort Walla Walla and, and Lapway, the museum out there, and <coughs> excuse me. Yeah. And so he he actually would spend years doing the research that I did in about three months. Yeah, I figured you must have done a heck of a lot of research because they would, you know, yeah, I said either either the Delaware Indians and the Amish are coming after him with pitchforks, or this is somewhat accurate. Uh, it's it's very accurate, and what I do is I, I uh, for every book that I have on my computer, I have a folder for it, and I also have a folder on my browser for that book. And most most oh, of my folders. Howard, stop. Okay, go ahead. Most of my most of my folders on my browser have hundreds of uh, bookmarks in them from Ooh. different articles and different uh, things that I've researched. And then I buy books, too. I've got a couple of books sitting right here about the Lenape and their ceremonies and how they, you know, the Delaware Indians and how they did this and that, and uh, and the characters and all of the characters that were involved in the story. And as a matter of fact, some of the characters are real historical characters. The the guy that perpetrated the Nodenhuten massacre and the and the actual Indians that were there, some of the leaders of the Christian Indians that were massacred, uh, those are all historical figures. And and I actually uh, wrote the account of the massacre based on the historical notes that were that were put down by the Moravian missionaries, you know, uh, Heckwelder and uh, Zeisberger and those guys. They're in the book, and they're real. They're real characters. You know, real uh, historical characters. The interesting thing about using real stuff like that. Ran into a situation. Uh, William J. McDonald is a television and movie producer, and I wrote a, a screenplay uh, for Egypt. <laughs> Strange story, but uh, it was about uh, a battle that that took place in the early 600s in the Byzantium, and. One of the notes we got back on the screenplay was, we don't believe the dialogue in this scene just does not sound real whatsoever. And whoever said, the dialogue is taken directly from the notes of the meeting <laughs> that have been preserved. <laughs> this is the right. actual dialogue. This is what the people really said. And that's what yeah. they, yeah, because it... You know, what's that, like a Martian wouldn't say that. <laughs> no, yeah, right. Or, or Brad Pitt wouldn't say that. <laughs> well, let's ask Brad Pitt. See, see if yeah, right. See if the wind is right in my hair. Uh, the, I can remember when we were uh, youngsters, which was more than a week ago. Uh, yep. I can remember going up to the uh, site of the Whitman massacre, which put an end to the uh, the missionary movement uh, on the West Coast. It was like, what, 18, right. uh, whatever it was. Uh, you could still find arrowheads and stuff. Yeah, you could. And uh, that was, uh, I, I spent a lot of time out there because my Aunt Alice Nimi was also a historical writer, and she wrote uh, a bunch of articles about the Whitmans, and so we would go out there a lot and go through the museum, and, and in fact, she had uh, a couple of articles that were on display there. There, there was a a papoose doll that was made for the, one of the Sager girls by Narcissa Whitman, hmm. uh, and so that was that was uh, I forget her Elizabeth Sager or one of the two Sager girls that survived the massacre hidden under the floorboards, and uh, 
that was all. There was some another amazing story there. That was that story about the Sager children who were coming to Oregon, and halfway there, both their parents died. And so 12-year-old John Sager brought all of the rest of his four siblings all the way to wow. Lapway. Wow, I didn't know that story. That is incredible. He's 12 years old, and he brings the rest of the family on? Yes, he brought. he got them all there. Uh, and, and they ended up walking the last hundred miles because their cow died and they had nothing to pull their, their wagon. But young John Sager, uh, the story of the Sager kids is really an amazing story, and that's all part of that whole... And then John Sager was one of the people killed in the massacre. Mm. He was about uh, 16 then at the time. Well, they sure were... I don't know if you've read my brilliant book, uh, Headlock, which uh, all takes place in Walla Walla, and I tell the story of the of the uh, the women massacre, and how, of course, they do, don't know exactly where uh, little Alice is uh, buried because they moved the bodies and moved the graves and all that sort of stuff. Right. <clears throat> but uh, boy, the Indians sure did not like Narcissa Whitman. Ooh, they <laughs> they didn't they, like her. They at thought all. that she had put measles in the blankets. Yeah. Yeah, because they were getting sick. And that's and, why they were getting those measles and they were dying because they had absolutely no, uh, uh, you know, immune system barriers against measles. And so uh, someone told them that the white guys, that the Whitmans were, were infecting the blankets that they were giving them with measles. And so that started the whole thing. Yeah, and it didn't end well. It did not end well, No, no. Except, of course, if uh, you want to be a tourist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> then, then it's a fascinating story. Uh, yeah. So uh, there aren't any Amish uh, outside of that particular area where they live. There's a, there's an article. I don't know if you bookmarked this one, but I was preparing for the show. I found a fascinating article by uh, an interview with this couple from New York. Uh, I can't remember, he had some high-powered corporate position, and his uh, wife was a psychologist or something like that. And they decided to abandon the uh, New York lifestyle and become Amish, which they did. Wow. And uh, talks about why they did it, uh, what it was like for them, and the difficulty they had. And the difficulty they had was primarily had to do with language, is that they had to learn to speak whatever, you know, that... That, that Amish talk, <laughs> you know, whatever. Well, it's, uh, the the talk that they use out in public is called Pennsylvania Dutch, and it's kind of a polyglot, uh, you know, pigeon pigeon German. Uh, when they talk among themselves, they actually use High German, hmm. and that's that's why they call anybody who's not Amish English. Hmm. So if you're an Englisher. It means that you're not Amish, and because they consider themselves to be Germans, and in fact, most of them are of German-Swiss descent. And the first Amish came to America from the from the lowlands of the Netherlands, and they had been they were Anabaptists. They didn't believe in infant baptism. They believed that a child should be allowed to wait until he was old enough to make that decision for mm -hmm. himself right uh, but but the thing that made everybody angry about it was that it when in those days when you baptized a child they went on the tax rolls mm -hmm. and so the anabaptists were de de 
depriving the secular authorities and the church authorities of a source of revenue. Right. And that was that was what made them the most angry. And so they started persecuting, even putting them to the stake and and murdering them. And so they, the the Anabaptists were under huge persecution in Switzerland, in Germany, and in the Netherlands. And so when when uh, when Penn's uh, representative, William Penn's representative, showed up because he now that Penn had this big piece of land in order to make any money off it, he needed to sell plots of land to settlers. Mm. And so he sent emissaries all through Europe saying, hey, come to my colony in Pennsylvania and you can get really beautiful land for next to nothing and I guarantee religious freedom. No persecution. And so in 1720, the first Amish came over and they settled uh, just north of Lancaster in a place called Northkill and that settlement is still there today and that's why there's so many uh, they're talking about somehow they got on the topic of the history of, of baptism and when uh, baptizing kids started as a as you mentioned as a revenue source you right, know, not as of necessarily a spiritual. Oh, I have a great spiritual idea. It's, hey, if we if we baptize them when they're born, we can get money out of it. And, That's right. Uh, uh, I just found that fascinating because then you get into the whole thing of the importance of the separation of the church from the state. Because if you've got the state involved in this, getting money out of this because of what the clergy's into, then it gets real crazy. Which yeah, is very very crazy. Which is exactly what uh, uh, with the Iranian Revolution. A lot of people go, well, how do, what was happening there? Uh, well, I had to do a lot of research on that for a, a book uh, that I did called, I uh, can't remember the name of it, but it's a brilliant book, of course, <laughs> written, by, <laughs> written by somebody else. I did the English language version, I Love at the Cost of Life. And what it was is that the Shah of Iran had instituted capitalism in the, uh, in the big cities, competition, yeah. you know. And then decided to do it in the rural areas with the farmers. Well, the farmers had had these co-ops for centuries that worked great. And the clergy got a piece of the action. Well, all of a sudden, they were telling the farmers, you've got to compete with each other. Which they're going, huh? You know, wait, wait, yeah. this works. Don't mess with it. No, no, you got to compete with each other. And they cut the clergy out of getting their piece of the action. And that's what led to the revolution. Well, it's very interesting. I was in Iran uh, when the Shah was still in power, and it was a very, very capitalistic society then. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the, the the actual uh, uh, religious aspect of, of of that of that period of Iranian history uh, was very muted, very muted, and women were seen on the streets in Western clothes. And uh, all of the guys that I dealt with were all high-powered businessmen who were out to make a really mm -hmm. quick or, and very big bucks. And I met some very interesting people when I was over there. I met a, a man named uh, Gadami, Mr. Gadami, whose uh, son was Anwar Sadat, whose son-in-law was Anwar Sadat's wow. son. And so uh, Gadami... Uh, rebuilt Port Said after the Six-Day War. After huh. the, uh, the the Israelis wiped out Port Said, then Gadami came in from Iran and became a billionaire rebuilding that city. 
And so I got to talk to him about, um, oh, solar energy and, you know, a mm-hmm. whole bunch of other stuff that I was into back in those days. But uh, it was a it was a very different society than than you see there now. Oh yeah, that's very they're they're ripe for another turnover. An acquaintance of mine uh, that I actually did another book for, Ghost wrote a book for him. Uh, the doc was a doctor there, very well known uh, gynecologist and also a surgeon uh, internationally, and uh, very very wealthy. In fact, I figured out in in current terminology or whatever, he was worth about fifty one million dollars uh-huh. uh, by today's standards. And he always said, if there's ever a problem. You know, because he was a Baha'i. He says, if the Baha'is ever persecuted, it's not going to be a problem. He says, I'll just fly us all out of here. <laughs> However, yeah. what, what he didn't anticipate when the Khomeini came in is the first thing Khomeini did was confiscate all of this guy's property and seized all of his bank accounts. Yeah. And so for the only way that this guy came out all right on this deal uh, was that because he had so much money, he owned the uh, American Shopping Center there, he owned uh, several hospitals, women's clinics, etc., he had put $2 million in an American bank just to get the interest. And yep. so when he managed to escape from Iran and, and come here, he had $2 million. If it hadn't been for that, he really would have been. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's been trying to go after the, the, the frozen assets, you know, that we gave yeah. some uh, back to Iran that uh, Iran had, because uh, he was putting in a claim, you know, because they took all yeah. of his stuff. You know, I'd, I'd like some of my $51 million back, you know. As long yeah, as exactly. As long as you froze <laughs> their assets, I wouldn't mind having it. But uh, it's, uh, things went real strange real fast when, uh, and I guess according to the American intelligence, we didn't see it coming. No. Uh, well, and actually I think that uh, President Carter had a lot to do with all of that because he did not like the Shah and he did not like what was going on there, you know. Well, the Shah was the a crook. <laughs> yeah. That was well, always I, I, a problem, I, yeah. I talked to some guys over there and they said, you know, um, the, Shah, the Shah runs everything and his sister runs everything else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that kind of narrows it down. <laughs> Well, and I, I said, because uh, I knew that a lot of Americans. Uh, ah, uh, are you back? We had a problem. Every time Howard sits down, the sound goes out. We haven't yeah. figured out why. So Howard stood up, and so for all the time that you know we went with no problem, he just came back in and sat down, and the sound went crazy again. Uh-huh. Is there some kind of electrical contact on his backside? <laughs> well, yeah, he just had surgery. I think they may have... <laughs> they, they installed many a good thing. Yeah, they they, uh, they put a device... What was that book, Why Are We in Vietnam? By, what was that, Norman Mailer? Did he write that? Yeah, uh-huh. And that was where the guy had a device in his us, an electronic device. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, if I got a... How did I remember that? God, what year was Only that? you. Only I will know Pat remembered it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remembered it. That's <laughs> <laughs> like bringing up the origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind by yeah, Julian yeah, James. You're, you're so much older yeah. than I am. That's why. <laughs> it's really a tragic story. <laughs> the fact that we remember this. <laughs> hey, you well, remember that one, don't you? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, chapter two. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember that. He had something in his us. Well, Howard must be the embodiment of that book because ever since he came back from the hospital of having uh, his, uh, they wrote a rooter to his rear end that uh, now... That isn't what happened, but that's okay. <laughs> it was close, isn't it? Well, no, they uh, they wrote a rooter to my stomach. Oh. 
to get to the back. Oh, the, what, what, what shin did they go in through? They go in through your belly button or through your butt? <laughs> no, they, uh, they cut a 14-inch uh, uh, zipper down the front of my... Really? Is, is it a Teflon zipper or metal? No, it's metal. And could you go like that? Well, I could do that, but no. That your your kishkas would fall out. Yes, they would. <laughs> we don't want that to <laughs> Not oh, in public, this, anyway. Has, has this conversation gone west? <laughs> it's, gone, it's gone extraordinarily west. Uh, I, you know, I could talk about my operation, but why? <laughs> but why? You, we don't want us to hear about your kishkas. Right. No. Uh, and the and the portions were so small. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, just twenty percent of my colon, but uh, you know it's on display now at Cedar Sinai. <laughs> on the wall, yeah. we had a plaque. But that's no, that's not a bad idea. You know, for people who are donating money to the hospital if they have surgery there, is to have a little memento. I think you that's know that reminds me of a funny story. Back when I was a pastor, uh, I had a friend who was in the hospital and. Uh, he had an obstruction in his in his bowel, and but he was uh, determined that he was going to be healed by faith. Oh. And he had people he had people up in his room, and they were praying, and they were they were running around and leaping and doing all this <laughs> stuff. And and so I walked in, and uh, they all took off, and I'm looking at Mike, and he's lying there, and 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 I said, Mike, what are you going to do? You've got an obstruction in your bowel. He says, I just want to hear from the Lord, Pat. And just then, the doctor walks in. He walks up to Mike. He looks at him. He says, if I don't cut that piece of your bowel out in the next 15 minutes, you are going to die. <laughs> yeah. I said, Mike, I, I think you just heard from the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. did, he, did he go for it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's nice when they cut that part. <laughs> yeah, cut that part out. I had no idea. Cut, yeah. But see, Howard's much happier now. He had the blues real bad before. But ever since oh. he's had the surgery, there's a glow to his face. It's a much, uh, a much uh, a incredible glow. Yeah, they did a great... Well, they're very good there. They practice a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they go out on the weekends and just do it for fun. They grab strangers off the street. Hey, want to have part of your kishkas removed? Yeah. yeah. Hey, yeah, and we'll leave you in the bathtub full of ice. No, yeah. don't, no worries. Man. No, what they really do is they drop them off in uh, downtown L.A. and still in their hospital gowns. You oh, familiar boy. with that story? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> saw the hidden camera video of that. That was really scary. They, they let me stay in my room. They let you stay in the room. The, the thing with uh, why would I bring this up? But uh, and I won't. So I'm not done. <laughs> but they they uh, they do not let you get out of bed. With Massive original theme. Uh, do these people, the Anabaptists who were speaking uh, German in Pennsylvania, do they realize that? In the whole wide world of mass diversity, that they're a tiny little piece of something. Um, you know, I don't know that they even think about it. I don't know that they really spend a lot of time cogitating on where they fit into the grand scheme of things. Uh, they're an interesting group, and I think we talked about this last time. They they have this oral tradition which uh, would be uh, similar to the Law of Moses. Mm -hmm. uh, 
it's called the ordning or the ordinances and it's been passed down from century to century and literally it's been ever since the 1500s since uh, uh, Menno Simons started the, the Mennonite movement and then Jacob Ammons broke off from that over the issue of shunning but they have this thing called the ordning and can, it's, can, I, can, it's I st a, can I stop you right there? The issue yeah. of, of what? Shunning. Shunning? Shunning. Uh, and shunning is the one where if you don't keep the ordning, then they shun you. And literally, they shun you. They, uh, you know, ch children, teenagers that are, that are under the shunning will sit in the same kitchen but not at the same table, and no one speaks to them. Mm. That happened to me. Uh, that happened to you with Dan <laughs> Yeah, and so the only way that you can get out from underneath that is to heartily repent and come back to the right way. And the right way is determined by this set of rules called the ordning. And so their whole life is built around, uh, 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 you know, creating a right relation, creating a right relationship with God by being observant Amish. So it sounds kind of like Orthodox Judaism. Yes, exactly. And there's a great parallel between the two, you know, as I've studied it out, where, you know, you you do everything you can, even down to tithing your cumin and, and you know, like Jesus talked about, you, you, you know, by your, by your, by your laws, you've made the word of God to no effect. They get so tangled up in trying to keep these laws that they forget about the simple basic commandments. You know, love one another, be gracious, let there be right. grace among you, uh, be kind to one another, esteem others more highly than yourself. Those kind of... Those kind know, of important life-changing uh, things <laughs> that are so important. Well, things, that, things that if people practiced them, we would have a much more, uh, you know... Uh, a healthy, happy, uh, <laughs> healthy, happy society than what than what we see going on around us right now. Well, it's always been uh, pretty much, uh, I think, everyone's observation. If someone has an, uh, an over obsessive thing with the with the rules and regulations, that usually somewhere in there there's a lust for leadership or power. Yep, that's right. Uh, because if you're, you know, oh, these, the, you know, the minute, you know, you broke this little thing and da, 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 instead of, you know, what, what is the intent? What is the spiritual intent or moral ethical intent of this? So that's right, usually you can exactly. spot the people that are trying to either make a big buck off of it or have some illusion of power. <laughs> I can remember my, my, my first day at, at uh, KOL radio in Seattle and I saw for the first time in my immature little life, what they call a format wheel. And at 27 minutes after the hour on the format wheel, it said, element of humor. How'd you do with that? So I, I held the format wheel up to the microphone for my element <laughs> of humor. See this? <laughs> element of humor. Yeah. Yeah, they had everything element just mapped out. Was that just once an hour? Just once an hour, an element of humor. That's right. So any other time that I, you know, tried telling an Amish joke. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like that one too, Mennonite. I thought that was a good one. 
I'll remember that. I'll put it in into my next book. Oh, I'm sure oh, that'll maybe. go over well. <laughs> now, how, how do the Amish get along with the Mennonite, even if there's more than two? You know, uh, they 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 do. Um, uh, the only thing that separates the Mennonites from the Amish is the actual issue of shunning. The Mennonites do not shun, and so they have a little bit more gracious outlook on life than do the Amish. But other than that, they are the same people. It's the same uh, belief system. Now, the, the, the couple from New York that I mentioned that became Amish, they, after a couple of years, they, they became something else that was similar, where they didn't have to speak the German stuff. Right. I don't know what, I can't remember who it was that they joined, but it was kind of like, you know, Amish light. <laughs> well, the, it's really interesting because they're just like uh, Judaism, where there's everything from Orthodox to Reformed, uh, there's also all different levels of Amish, uh, really? from old order Amish all the way to beachy Amish. Beachy? And what's that? that, 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 that was it, that Malibu Barbie? <laughs> what, I mean, what is? Yeah, I, th I think so. Right, <laughs> Mattel. Yeah. It's the Mattel version. Beachy Amish. No, no, it's that's just a name for it. B e a c h y. Beachy Amish, and so. The old order Amish are the ones that we think about when we think about Amish because they're the ones who have no cell phones, no cars, no electricity, no power tools, none of that stuff. Although they're now there's these things happening among the Amish where they can use a gas generator or a propane generator to run a power tool as opposed oh. to bringing in as opposed to bringing an electric line <gasps> onto their property uh, because they feel that uh, getting the electric power into their house links them to the world that they don't want to be a part of. Uh, but they have propane stoves and pro you know propane water heaters and and uh, you know propane lanterns in their house and so it's it's really you know not um, is there as, kind of as, like fudging, fudging the rules a little bit? But who made up the rule that you couldn't have electricity? Where is that? Where did that yeah, come from? Uh, well, that's just part of the their whole thing about we don't want to be part of the world. And so uh, that means that we're going to keep everything as simple and organic as we can, and we're going to live off the land. And, and yet um, they'll have what they call a phone bank, where you go, where you can go down to the grocery store, and there'll be a bunch of cell phones there that they use to make their phone calls. Now wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. What is the difference between going to the general store and borrowing a cell phone and having one in your pocket? Well, uh, the the difference is it's kind of like the friend of mine who was a rabbi who uh, used to have a guy. You know, he couldn't work on the Sabbath, and so he would. Had, had, had a, a Sabbath goy, yeah. He had a goy that came in. Uh, in his case, it was a schwarze. Yeah. And, uh, and a schwarze he would, goy. Yeah, the, <laughs> the rabbi would sit uh, in a chair in the middle of the dark room, and he'd say, my, isn't it dark in here? And then the goy would go turn on the lights. Huh. I knew they were good you for know. something. <laughs> <laughs> How is shaky is that here? It's well, like I can't drive a car, but I can ride in one. Yeah. No, you, no, you, you can't know. ride. No, 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 you can't ride. But this guy yeah, did. Oh, yeah. 
But uh, um, yeah, if you're a Shabbos goy, you're a Shabbos goy. That's right. It's good work if you can get it. That's right. That's yeah, right. <laughs> that's that's like a thing I just read the other day that uh, you know, if, no matter if you don't like your job, there's always openings for uh, breastfeeding adults. Uh, what you <laughs> do, all you need is a list of clients and the ability to lactate. <laughs> <laughs> There's opportunities everywhere. Gosh, I wonder how Burl you know, knows of such a thing. How could he possibly? And, and huh. be, I wonder and, what uh, that, I wonder what that was was punched into the old search engine. Gosh, isn't that funny? I punched yeah. in Disneyland, but this came up. up. Yeah, but I punched in Teen Jobs, up. and this came up. Yeah. <laughs> and and people say they can't find jobs. Yeah, there's always something. <laughs> there. No, that was on a depressing. Is that on depression? <laughs> No. Man, oh man! No, it's time what to does the world over. come to? It's, I don't know. Every every generation thinks it's the worst. I was reading some of these old quotes from like the time of uh, Homer, not Homer Simpson, but the, the more famous one or less famous one. You know, all this right. generation is the worst ever in the history of the world. They have no respect for their parents. They're out of control. Blah 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 blah. And you go, yep, same old story. Yeah. Like the kids and their music today. Why can't they have music like we had when you were a musician? <laughs> Yeah, right. It's like, it's like. But Dad, don't you understand? I don't want to be a jazz musician. I want to be a rabbi. <laughs> yeah, Neil Diamond version. <laughs> the Neil, the Neil Diamond version of the jazz, jazz singer. singer. Yeah, I saw that. That was the second version, right? Well, that was about the third. Those also Danny yeah. Thomas did it, and he wasn't even Jewish. And he he played he, uh, that he's part. He's like Armenian or something, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But to close enough, you know, he's got a nose that makes it qualifies him. Yeah, <laughs> and dark hair. So yeah, that you know. that works. A nose and dark hair. Great. That's all you need. Great going, guys. <laughs> that's all you. That's, <laughs> all, that's all you need to play the uh, Jewish rabbi is a nose and dark hair. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. It's true. That's why they cast Danny Thomas. Yeah. What what happened to this show in the last twenty minutes? <laughs> Noses, uh, yeah. dark hair guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, times are tough all over. This is what happens I when I, I let old friends just go go at it. <laughs> and I stay out of it, but I yeah. can't stay out of it any longer. No, no, you, you get pushed just right, so well, far. Yeah. Jump on in, Howard. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be afraid. No. If you can Don't your, be afraid. If you can feel the your... The water's fine. Uh, yeah, if <laughs> you can have your stomach zippered, you can participate in this conversation. That's right. Hey, Pat, now that you've uh, totally captured the world of, uh, well, I mean, this, this thing with, uh, like you're mentioning uh, Christian mysteries. I was at the uh, uh, Mystery Writers of America conference, and they uh -huh. had a panel of specialized mysteries, like where the private eye is dyslexic and uh, uh, bipolar. <laughs> the other one where, where the, the, you know, the, the lead investigator is in a wheelchair and he's blind and deaf. And, uh, oh boy. and then they had the one with the old lady who wrote Christian Mysteries. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, said, I thought Christian Mysteries meant like transubstantiation, vicarious atonement. <laughs> you know, but, yes. But what uh, is, immaculate conception. Uh, right. Uh, to me, those are Christian <laughs> Mysteries. And she just kind of, uh -huh. I had said that to her, she kind of looked like she got hit in the head with a Torah or something. She's just kind of like, what? And then all this, she really. Hold oh, well, back up. <laughs> what? Got hit in the head. In other words, like instead of using a hammer, he was able to torque. Use a torque. Yeah. yeah. So you know, then she realized I was kind of pulling her, her leg a little bit. But uh, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the thing where they have a regular murder mystery, 
uh, and then somehow it turns into a proselytizing thing in the last chapter, which I haven't quite figured out the format of that yet. But you've you've developed uh, essentially uh, kind of like the fax machine of literature, and that is the fax machine was the first form of communication that was not demonized as being the work of the devil, right? Because it was a combination of two already accepted forms of communication: telephone and a copy machine. Right. But what you've done is you've taken all these, like all the things that from your reading of westerns and everything when you were younger, and murder mysteries and all that stuff, and putting them in an Amish cultural perspective or, or situation, which has never been done before. Now you're going to get people who are going to be inspired by you who are going to be doing the same thing. Has that already happened? Um, you know, it was interesting. I, I wrote that book, The Amish Heiress, and about three weeks after The Amish Heiress came out, uh, Wanda Brunstetter, who is the probably the longest uh, best-selling traditional Amish writer who writes uh, uh, bonnet sonnets and buggy and bonnet, uh, came out with a series called The Amish Millionaire. Huh. And so so I'm thinking, well, yeah. you know, because some of the reviews, one of the reviews I got on The Amish Heiress was, this could never happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Never happened. No, never get away with that. God, that just flashed me back when you mentioned the, the millionaire. When I was in sixth grade, yeah, I think it was sixth grade, went out to sell tickets for the Green Park Carnival. Ten cents yeah. a ticket. And Steve Schick and I uh, went to this lady's house. She lived real close to the school. She opened the door. This lady was enormous. I mean, she was, you know, like Haystack Calhoun. <laughs> she was large. And yeah. I said, hi, we're selling tickets for the Green Park Carnival. They're only ten cents. And she says, do I look like a millionaire to you? And I, <laughs> and I said, well, I may not be John Beresford Tipton, but I can tell you're not starving to death. <laughs> Wait, did you do a Tipton joke in sixth grade? Yeah, sixth grade of John Bearsford Tipton. And yeah. and all of a sudden, the next day, I'm called down to the principal's office. And my question was, how did you know it was me? She <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. who else? Well. Who else is going to make a John Bearsford Tipton joke in sixth grade? All right. Yeah. Well, maybe Pat would have if he'd been there. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting because... Uh, a couple of nights before we graduated from Wahai down in Walla Walla, Washington, mm -hmm. uh, me and several of my friends had managed to procure a key to the whole building, a master key. Wow. And so, so we went out there and we opened up all of the doors in the whole school, left them standing open. Ooh. And uh, as a kind of a prank, right? Yeah. So the next day... <laughs> We're at, at practice for the graduation over at Burleski Stadium, and in I see Pete Hansen driving up, Prin yeah. Principal, Principal Pete School, Hansen yeah. driving up, and he drives right up the track, right to where we're... Bright light in your face. All right. Yeah. Squeal, you rat. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't us. Don't know where you got the idea. Yeah, <laughs> no. That's like I saw uh, the uh, film of the Mullen Commission investigation of of uh, Kenya Rail and Michael Dowd and their 
illegalities of New York cops, and they, they asked Michael Dowd, what was the name of the head of the drug cartel that was paying you $8,000 a week? And he goes, uh, I don't remember. I think his name was Fred. <laughs> <laughs> I think his name was Fred, the head of the Dominican drug cartel. Actually, the head of the Dominican drug cartel was Adam Diaz, nicknamed Blondie, who called the other day and would like a book done about his life. Yes. <laughs> I think he did. And I said, well, I tell Fred, great, great, let's do it, let's do it. So we'll see how what happens there. He's got great yeah, stories. That's interesting. Only if I can call you Fred. Only <laughs> if I can call you Fred. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, typical I... D Dominican uh, name, Fred. Yep. Yeah, I think it's that. Red Santiago. Yeah. <laughs> so have uh, you already started writing your next uh, masterpiece? I am. I'm working on the third book in this series. It's called The Mennonite Queen, of all Ooh, things. Is this and a cross-dresser? Well, it, it could be. <laughs> we'll see how it turns out. We'll see how it turns no, out. It, it's actually uh, set in the 1500s. And uh, it's an interesting story because uh, there was a group of Anabaptists back then that were not nonviolent. They were very violent. And they actually took over the whole city of Münster, Germany, and proclaimed it to be the Anabaptist kingdom of God on earth. Ooh. And so all of the uh, Catholics and the Protestants formed an army and came against the Anabaptists, and there's this whole wonderful story about the two-year siege that took place around Münster, Germany, and so uh, also involved in that is a young lady who is a Polish princess who was destined to become a, a king or a, a queen married to one of the leading political guys, and their whole deal was to cement this alliance and take over Eastern Europe, and what a uh, bunch she, of intrigue! <laughs> yeah, and she instead falls in love with her Anabaptist stable boy, and they run off to Munster, and so that's going to be the story. Oh, this is this is going to be hot. This is going to be your best one yet. Yeah, I, mean, I you, think you're, so. you're going to have these things going to be like Patriot Games with the Amish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and then after that, I actually have a series in mind that's set in the. Uh, in the War of Roses, starting with the Battle of Agincourt Court uh, mm -hmm. in France, coming all the way to the battle uh, 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 where uh, Richard III was killed. Next, Plus, after that, I suggest do science fiction, Amish. takes place in the future, where they all yeah. use electricity, but they don't use whatever it is that comes after that. <laughs> well, I was thinking, uh, I actually own the website uh, AmishZombie.com. <laughs> <laughs> Figures. Doesn't surprise me, Pat. <laughs> and so I was thinking, you know, so the Amish zombies actually all starve to death because the only thing that they can catch uh, is, like, each other. Because <laughs> because all they've got is horses to ride and everybody else has cars. Oh, I think <laughs> it's, a, it's a good idea. I think it, it just might have legs and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> if the zombies don't eat them off. Yeah, it's, it's always a problem with the zombie apocalypse. Yep. Oh, speaking of zombie apocalypse, we've, we're out of time. It, it goes very, oh. very fast, and it's always a pleasure to let two old friends talk yeah. and just sit back and listen. Thanks, Patrick. Yeah, nice bye, talking bye to you them. again, Howard. Yeah, buy all of Pat's books while you're buying all of mine. And uh, All right, Burl. We'll okay. talk to you soon. Okay, thanks, Pat. All right. Bye-bye. So, uh, Burl? Yeah? What's next? 
Uh, I believe it's Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence live on OutlawRadioUSA.com.